Welcome to the Truth Across Time podcast. I'm your host, Sheila Farmer. As a lifelong student of history and English, I enjoy learning about the cultures, customs, and lifestyles in the Bible. Please join me as we explore the fascinating world of biblical events and the people involved. You'll see that the people of the Bible had concerns, triumphs and tragedies, joys and sorrows, successes and failures, not too different from our own. But because the Bible is God's Word, we can learn spiritual, eternal truths while looking at those people. Now let's go on this adventure and explore the truths that cross the limits of time and location. Last week, we were looking at the life of John the Baptist, and we started with a brief overview of the circumstances of John's, his parents, and the prevailing state of religious life in Israel. Here's just a brief recap. John's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were both descended from Aaron, the first high priest talked about in the book of Exodus. Zacharias was a priest at the temple in Jerusalem. It's not certain whether he was the high priest or not. He may have been, but we're not told for sure. Elizabeth, John's mother, was older and was childless when our story starts. But God gave her and Zacharias a miracle and enabled them to have John, a man who was chosen for a special, sacred job. The primary religious groups in Israel in John's day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the majority. They were very legalistic and strict. But they were also guilty of hypocrisy in that they applied the law and their man-made rules to others but they certainly weren't strict with themselves. The Sadducees were more worldly. They didn't accept the traditions and rules tacked onto Levitical law by the Pharisees. They also didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or in angels or other spirit beings. Both groups were generally corrupt. Not all of them, of course, but generally so. A third religious group, was the Essenes, spelled E-S-S-E-N-E-S. They were fewer in number compared to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they lived in their own communities, apart from society, generally in the desert areas. And they lived very strict, self-denying lives in what were basically communes. They hated the corruption and the decadence and the lack of true piety of their country and they secluded themselves to live sort of like monks. They preserved old scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures, and they faithfully made exact copies, paying meticulous attention to every letter and every punctuation mark. They hid the scrolls in caves when the Roman army began to punish Judea by destroying towns and communities. The Essene communities in the wilderness were destroyed around 68 AD, just two years before Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed. But the scrolls were preserved in clay jars, hidden in caves, and they were discovered again in 1947, almost 2,000 years later. They're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls because they were discovered in the Qumran Caves located near the Dead Sea. The importance of these discoveries cannot be overstated. 
These scrolls confirm the accuracy of many passages in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures that had been printed as part of the Bible that we're familiar with, especially the book of Isaiah. Through the centuries, so many people have attacked the Bible and questioned its accuracy, but these scrolls preserved by the Essenes did nothing but confirm the truth and the accuracy of many Bible passages. It's very possible that John the Baptist had contact with the Essenes. Certainly, John's lifestyle and his condemnation of much of society's hypocritical and ungodly practices were congruent with what the Essenes taught. But regardless of how John arrived at the place he was when he began his public ministry, he didn't have a comfortable life. He lived without luxuries and even without what most people would consider basic necessities. He was single-minded in that his overriding concern was his ministry mission, preaching the gospel of repentance from sin, baptizing people, and fulfilling his role as forerunner of Jesus. That means that he arrived on the scene first and announced the coming of the Messiah. Many people responded to him. The Bible tells us that many people flocked to hear him, even though he preached in places that weren't convenient to them. He preached with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he baptized in water those who repented. The baptism was an outward sign of the person's repentance. His constant theme was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You know, it must have been quite an experience to hear John preach. He certainly didn't mince words. He preached with great fervor. He was direct and strong, and he openly declared the sinfulness of man and the absolute need for repentance. He spoke to the religious men who came to hear him, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he was really blunt with them, even calling them a brood of vipers and hypocrites. John taught that judgment was at hand. That means it's right there on the doorstop. He didn't care about pleasing the crowd or the leaders of society who came to hear him. Plain spoken and yet eloquent, he managed to offend the religious leaders of the day as well as the civil authorities, including the king, the highest civil authority. So, can you imagine what John must have thought when he looked up one day and saw Jesus walking toward him at the Jordan River? This was the one he had been preaching about, the Messiah. I'm reading now from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, 
This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What must John have felt when he saw Jesus coming to him at the Jordan? Hard to imagine, isn't it? We don't know if John and Jesus had met at any earlier time in their lives, perhaps when they were children. It's interesting to speculate, but we simply don't know. But now Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is right in front of him, asking to be baptized. John knew he was unworthy to do this, but he obeyed. Did John's heart skip a beat? Did he find it hard to breathe deeply? Was he emotionally aware of the presence of pure holiness? Can't wait to ask him in heaven, can you? The Bible tells us that Jesus, after being baptized as an example to all disciples who would follow, went right away to the wilderness, alone, to fast for 40 days and nights and to be tempted by Satan. Well, we know how that turned out. Jesus soundly defeated Satan by simply answering with the word of God. He didn't debate Satan. He didn't even really engage in dialogue. He simply spoke God's word. How foolish of Satan to think he could entice Jesus to do something, anything, wrong. But Satan doesn't give up, does he? He, the source of evil, tempts us and tries us all the time, the disciples of Christ. One of the reasons we must learn God's word and hide it in our hearts, as the Bible says, is to be able to withstand temptations and trials. The word of God is real and true and strong, and it's the answer to every situation. The next big event that the book of Matthew tells us about in John's life is John's death at the hands of Herod Antipas, the king, also known as the Tetrarch, in chapter 14. Verses 3 through 12 say, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put John to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them, and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. What was behind all this? Why did Herod have such animosity toward John? Well, it goes back to Herod's origins, his family line, and to Levitical law. The Levitical law was given by God through Moses centuries earlier. Herod Antipas was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was king of Israel, 
also called Judea, when Jesus was born. He was a vicious, ungodly, savage man. He's the Herod who intended to kill the Magi, who had traveled so far to see the newborn king of the Jews. And he was the same Herod who had all the male babies, two years old and under, slaughtered in an effort to make sure he killed the child whose coming had been prophesied. By the time Herod the Great died, he had had at least three of his own sons and at least one nephew killed, plus some other relatives, suspecting them of plotting against him. Herod was not a Jew. He was Idumean and had been a political appointee by Rome. Rome had appointed him not only to insult the Jews, but to try to ensure his loyalty to Rome. Herod Antipas, grandson of Herod the Great, and Tetrarch, or King, of Galilee, is the one who hated John and had him thrown in prison. But again, why did he hate John so much? Herod had a half-brother named Philip, who was Tetrarch of a region around what is present-day Syria. Philip was actually, by most accounts, the son of Herod the Great. His name was Herod Philip, but it gets too confusing to distinguish between the various Herods if we use that name. The family relationships of the Herods are somewhat complicated, and there is some debate about whether Philip was actually Herod Antipas's brother or his uncle. The Bible says that they were brothers, so... I say that's proof enough. Anyway, Philip had been married to a woman named Herodias. By the way, she was also a relative. Some Bible scholars say that Herodias was, his, was Philip's niece. They had a daughter named Salome. At that time, Herod Antipas was also married to someone else. But it didn't matter. Herod Antipas and Herodias wanted to marry each other. So they did. Never mind that they were also obviously related. Herod was likely her uncle, and so they put away their respective spouses and married each other. Sounds like a bad soap opera, doesn't it? But sadly, it was true. This is strictly against Levitical law. A man was not allowed to marry his brother's wife while that brother was still living. That was considered adultery and was punishable by death, according to Jewish religious law. But did Herod care? Obviously not. He considered himself above the law. He was actually contemptuous of religious Jews who took their religion seriously. He was, however, superstitious and didn't necessarily want to deliberately offend them or their God if he could help it, as long as it didn't really disrupt his life or his plans. John preached against this immorality and denounced them for their terrible sins. So while Herod disliked John and was offended and irritated by him, Herodias developed a passionate loathing for John. She was as wicked and cunning as any of the male Herods, and she looked for a way to get rid of John. Apparently, John had warned Herod one time too many, 
that he was unlawfully wed to Herodias. So Herod had John thrown in prison, almost certainly in the same building where Herod's residence was, a huge palace, and the prison would have been an underground dungeon. This was Herodias' chance. John was within her grasp, but she dared not harm him herself. She dared not cross Herod so blatantly. So when Herod's birthday came around, they had a huge party with lots of officials and minor royalty present. It was a huge bash. Herodias decided to take advantage of the opportunity. She had her daughter, Salome, dance for Herod as entertainment. This is pretty disgusting and wicked. People commonly believed that Herod lusted for Salome, that he desired her for himself. It wasn't enough that he already had her mother. Anyway, Salome obeyed her mother and danced. Tradition says it was the dance of the seven veils, but this may be a relatively modern legend. We don't know for sure. Anyway, the dance was seductive and specifically intended to arouse Herod. It worked. Because she pleased Herod, he promised to give her whatever she wanted. Prompted by her mother, Salome asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, literally. The Bible says that Herod was sorry and apparently didn't want to do this, at least publicly. But because he had made an oath to her in front of all the guests, he complied. He had John beheaded and gave the head to Salome, who in turn gave it to her mother Herodias. And thus ended the ministry of a true man of God, a man who had been chosen by God from his mother's womb to be the forerunner of the Messiah. But John had fulfilled his mission. He had devoted his life to preaching the true word of God and to heralding the entrance of Jesus on the public world stage, the one who would change the course of human history. John was a zealot in the sense that he was consumed by his mission. He let nothing and no one stand in his way. He was truly that voice crying in the wilderness, and he was heard. And yet when the time came, he knew it was time to take second place to the only one who deserved devotion from people. He even said of Jesus one time, He must increase, but I must decrease. He never quit preaching against sin and urging people to repent. He was the transitional prophetic figure from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and he had the privilege of being God's voice to the people both high and low, to tell them that Jesus is above all, the one whose coming had been prophesied for centuries had arrived. We can learn so much from John. The devotion to duty, the passion to fulfill one's mission, the refusal to not speak truth just because it offends the ears of some, and certainly the recognition that Jesus is above all the one who is the complete fulfillment of messianic prophecy, the very Son of God. John's death was swift and ugly, 
but it lasted for only a few seconds. He'll spend eternity reaping the reward for his faithfulness to God. Please join me on my next podcast as we study more Truth Across Time. I hope this podcast encourages you to develop a closer relationship with Jesus. But if you haven't made a decision to follow Christ, I pray you will ask Him to be the Lord of your life today. God bless. See you next week.